Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. I have to say, um, I know I've said this before, I don't know if there's a greater blessing than singing praises to our Savior with the church. Um, Man, to hear the voices of God's people just singing out to him that we will build our life upon his love, uh, that we will put our trust in him. Um, And I love what was said there by Pastor Greg, that it will not just be a song we sing, or words we sing, it'll be something, a prayer from our hearts. Um, but it's hard to really honestly do that, is it not? Isn't it hard to put your trust every single day of every single moment in him? I and mean, if we're being honest, I, I know it's church, but I think we can get real for a little bit. Um, I feel like as Christians, sometimes we, we know him, we, we are saved, we're redeemed. But the little things, the everyday things, man, we still struggle, I believe, to put our trust fully in him. To truly believe that he is actually over all things and to be okay with whatever he wills. And I don't know for you if that's true, but I know for me in my life it's been true. And I'm so thankful for his grace that calls us back to continue to renew that trust in him. Uh, John chapter 13, we're going to get to uh, a very familiar passage in just a moment. But we're in week two of our series, Love Like Jesus. And again, if we're talking about things that are easier to say than they are to do, uh, that would fall right in line with that. Um, Trust in Christ and love like Jesus could be two of the hardest things to do every single day of our lives. But we endeavor to do that. We want to love like Jesus. We're in week two, as I said. And if you missed last week, our first week of the series, uh, we encourage you to go online. You can get it through the app, North Goodland BC, in your app store. You can get it online at the northgoodland.org. Um, any which way you can get that message, you can download that. Um, you can watch the whole service, uh, music and everything, if you want to be a part of that. If you missed last week's, definitely check that out. Um, but this morning, we're moving into uh, the second week of this idea and talking about loving like Jesus practically, not just in words, not just at church, but every single day. How can we put this into practice? I heard a relatively famous preacher say once, all you need is love. All you need is love. And I agree. Now, not only did a preacher say this, there was a pretty popular songwriter that said this as well. But when you think about this idea of all you need is love, I agree. All we need is to know that God loved us so much that he gave himself for us that we might enjoy him and glorify him forever in this life and in the life to come. Amen. We get to know him and be known of him, which is an amazing reality. It's great to know God, but it's so much greater to know that God knows you. And that God is interested in you and cares for you and wants to know what's going on in your life. He's intimately involved in every single day of your life. You know him, but he knows you. And then we get to glorify him and enjoy him in this life and in life to come. I honestly believe the number one way that we enjoy God is glorifying God. And I think when we're glorifying God, we're enjoying him. And I think when it comes to glorifying God, it's realizing that we have nothing to offer. It's all in his grace. We receive that freely, and then we extend that to others. To get us thinking in the right direction this morning, this idea of this series of love like Jesus, and and all we really need is love. And I understand, as we said last week, uh, sometimes the love of God has been used to excuse away sin or to make sin not a big deal. Watch last week's. We explained all of that. We talked about the balance that we're striving for in this series. But I want to get us thinking in the right direction by asking you to think of a time. You don't need to answer out loud, but just think of a time when God showed his love to you in a huge way. So just take a moment. I honestly want you to do this. Just take a moment 
And I want you to think about this. When was there a time in your life, and I know not, a lot of us would go, well, salvation. You know, when, when God saved me and offered salvation to me, obviously he was showing his love to me, and that's true. But I want you to think of a time since you've been a follower of Christ that God has showed his love to you, and you knew it was just his love. It was just on display, and he made it known, and it just affected you in some way. So I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think about when I knew that the love of God was for me, not just in salvation, which obviously is great. We talked about forgiving sinners last week, but I want you to think about a time in your Christian life where God showed his love to you and you were just in awe. You just, you couldn't even hardly speak because you were just overwhelmed by the presence of God's love in your life. And I hope you can think of a time. I hope you think of maybe many times in your life. And I want you to think about how does that make you feel when you realize God loves you that much that when you were going through whatever you were going through, that he intervened, that he got involved, that he brought about attention to his love and grace. How did that make you feel? How, what did that stir up inside of you? What reaction did it cause as far as your response to God when you realized this is God's love in my life? And I really believe that when we don't stop to acknowledge the love of God in our lives and the little things and the big things, we'll miss wonderful opportunities to praise him and to glorify him. When we don't stop and acknowledge, God, this is your love. This is an act of your grace. I'm not going to call her up to the stage or anything, but I was just talking to somebody before service who went through a health thing here recently. And they said, man, I didn't know if I was going to make it out of this thing. But they're, they're with us this morning. They're here. And so they could obviously testify and go, man, God, you've been so good to me. I know your love and grace is for me. Man, we don't always see it in the moment, but I pray that we'll take time to evaluate and look back and say, God, show me where you've stepped in and loved me. And it was obvious that it was your love that was moving. The reason I want us to think about this is because I believe that if we stop and realize the response we have before the love of God, how it made us feel, we can actually use it as a way to worship him at a deeper level than we did before. We can worship him at a truer level than we did before. Last week, we talked about how Jesus demonstrated his love to us through acts of love. The greatest of these acts was the act of forgiving sinners. We discovered that because we have been forgiven, we can forgive others by his grace. We talked about the acts of love that God demonstrates to us. The greatest of these is that he chose to forgive sinners. Uh, if you think you're worthy of his forgiveness, raise your hand. Anyone? Anyone worthy of his forgiveness? No, I didn't think so, right? Now, once we've received his forgiveness, he shows us our worth. He shows us our value. But did we earn his salvation? Did we earn his grace? No, he, was wor he saw us as worthy enough to die for us. He said, I know you're worthy. You have value. But you can't do anything to make, make salvation happen. You can't earn this. So I need to give you my son. And in so doing, showed us our actual worth. See, Ray is right. Ray raised his hand and said, yeah, I think, I think I'm worthy. What Ray was saying, if I'm not reading into Ray's mind here, but Ray and I have talked about this stuff before. I believe what Ray was saying is, God sees me as worthy enough to save me. Not I've earned it and I've made enough work to do it the way that God would be pleased so that I can make God save me. See, we have to understand this. We're, we're, we're valuable and we're treasures before God. But in our sin, we can't earn God's love. We can't make ourselves good enough to be saved. 
So in essence, we weren't worthy of his salvation because it was of grace. But man, I'm so thankful that he showed us our true value and how much he truly loves us in forgiving us. I pray that this week, that the act of God forgiving you and the reminder of that last week, I pray that that has caused you to stop and evaluate unforgiveness in your own heart, unforgiveness in your own life, where the Lord has been maybe encouraging you to look for opportunities to show the love of Christ, to forgive someone that's offended you. It doesn't mean it's okay what they did. It doesn't mean you allow them back into your life. It doesn't mean you go to them for relationship. It merely means you forgive them so you can move on from that offense and see all that God has for you. But even in, not just in the area of forgiveness, I pray that you've been looking for opportunities to demonstrate the love of God to someone in your life. Maybe this last week, God brought an opportunity that you could love on someone and encourage someone and just be there for someone. I pray that that's happened in your life. This morning, as we're talking about the love of God and to love like Jesus, we talked last week about forgiving sinners. This morning, we're talking about that Jesus doesn't just forgive sinners. He washes feet. He washes feet. John chapter 13, go there with me real quick. John chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. I want to look at a passage that, again, is very familiar here. That we understand that, that Jesus demonstrated this for us. John chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he shouldn't, should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What's the emphasis John is trying to get us to understand here in the very first verse? Man, that he loved them. And we actually talked about this just recently, this passage, a different aspect of this passage. But I pray that the love of God is not lost on us this morning. Verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Simon, or Judas is there. He's, he's at the dinner. He's at the meal. And that makes what happens next even more powerful. You see, Jesus loved his disciples. And I love that he says this. He loved them that were in the world. I believe Jesus loves us long before we even know him. Right? We know that to be true. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. I think God's love is for us. But when we realize that love for us and we respond in the act of salvation, we receive his gift of salvation, now we have that love of Christ that we can experience every single day of our lives. So John chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the first thing John wants us to know in verse 1 is that he loved us. And he's going to demonstrate that love in a most irrational way. I'm going to ask that we would pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we come before you today, Lord, thankful that we are valuable and worthy because we are created beings of God. But Lord, when, we're, when we really look at it, we can't earn your salvation. We can't earn your grace. And Lord, while we are created beings that you formed and gave life, sin has corrupted that. And we are drifted and distant from you. And yet you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins, to be buried and rise again, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And in that act of saving grace that you extend to us, we begin a relationship with you, intimate and personal, where we get to experience your love every single day. And it's in that relationship that we actually see the fullness of our worth and our value. Lord, we're not 
able to earn it, but, but Lord, you show us that we are your sons and daughters and you care for us. Father, I pray that you would, as only you can, instill these things in our hearts and minds. Help us to know the truth and to know that you love us, that we would love others. Father, thank you for this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So setting the scene, we know the story, what's happening here. This is the night before the crucifixion, right? Or before Jesus is getting ready to be arrested, then go to be crucified. He's with his disciples. He's having this meal with them. He's celebrating with them this Passover. Tensions may be high among the disciples um, as the climate around Christ has begun to change, right? Now, it's not so much this positive environment around Christ. It's more of a negative environment. Um, The crowds seem to be kind of lessening in some degree. But yet the religious leaders are coming harder and harder after Christ. There's more and more tensions. The disciples might feel some of that tension as they're watching what's happening around them. There might be concern about what's going to happen. How are the religious leaders going to handle this, quote, Jesus problem? We've seen and heard in the Gospels up to this point the kind of the back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so the meal was not a normal Passover meal. There were some tensions. There was a little bit of concern. We know Judas has already made a decision to betray Christ. And yet Jesus uses this moment and this meal to demonstrate again his love for them. So he served them in love. If you're taking notes, one thing you need to jot down is we serve in love. Jesus is going to serve the disciples and he's going to do it in love. He's serving them in love. We need to write that down. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, this is what you'd call an irrational act of love. It's an irrational act of love. According to Luke's gospel, an argument actually breaks out among the disciples of who is going to be the greatest. So in Luke's account, during this time, an argument breaks out about who's going to be the greatest. Who's the greatest disciple? Was it John? I mean, he was called the beloved and he has a pretty great name. So I could see him maybe thinking I should be the one. Was it Peter? I mean, after all, Peter's the one that walked on water, so he probably should be the greatest, right? He was kind of the spokesperson for the disciples. Andrew doesn't even speak for himself because Andrew, poor guy, he's always kind of in the background. He's always there, but you never really read much about him except for when he brings people to Jesus, which is a pretty amazing testimony. I love Andrew among the disciples. He wasn't the loudest. He wasn't read about the most. But in the couple of times we read of Andrew, he's just constantly bringing people to Jesus. He started with his own brother, by the way, who ends up walking on water. Then we read about these Grecians that come from Greece, and he brings them. Right? How about when they were trying to feed the multitude? One account gives us the fact that it was Andrew that brought the young boy, the young man, with the food to Jesus. And say, well, I don't know what you can do, Lord, but here, he has this. I mean, you read this individual. And so here these disciples, they're arguing back and forth about who's the greatest. And yet in the midst of them is sitting the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Matthew 23, 11 says, and if they would have remembered Jesus' words, they would have never had this argument. 
Matthew 23, 11 says this, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. So if you want to be the greatest, be the best servant you can be. To be the greatest, we should strive to be the best servant. And it's in this context that Jesus stands and humbles himself to the position of a servant and washes the disciples' feet. And I've said this every time I talk about this passage, Judas is sitting right there. That means he washed Judas's feet. He's serving Judas in love. To the very last moment, he was, I believe, trying to show and demonstrate the love of God for all, even those who would betray him. And so he does this amazing, irrational act. And the reason it's irrational is because Jesus should have been the one that they were serving. Jesus is the one that they should have been fighting over to serve. He should have been the one that was elevated and lifted up. One author says this, and I love the way he words this. On this occasion, there was no servant and no one else volunteered. Jesus' uh, was, action was during the meal, not upon arrival, done deliberately to emphasize a point. It was a lesson in humility, but it also set forth the principle of selfless service that was so soon to be exemplified in the cross. And Jesus is setting forth an example here. He's serving them in love. He's humbling himself to the act of a servant, the lowest act somebody could take on. He was by far the greatest among them. He was of the most worth, the most value. And yet in fulfilling his own statement, Jesus is the one that said, if you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. And in fulfilling his own statement, he served all of them, even those that wanted to betray and see him arrested. It was an irrational act. They don't deserve it, but Jesus serves them anyway. It was an irrational act that didn't make sense, but Jesus served them anyway. And see, that's when we talk about the love of God. We have to step beyond the rational into the irrational sometimes. You may say, what does that even mean? I, I don't even understand what that means. It means sometimes you're going to serve someone that you don't even like. See, it's easy to serve the people we do like, is it not? It's easy to serve people that serve us or we love or they love us, right? Sometimes our kids are questionable on that. We're just saying. But it's easy to serve someone that we know has a love for us. Sometimes we serve for really wrong motives and we serve because what we're going to get out of it. But an irrational God-like love and serving is where I go to someone that I don't even like, I don't agree with, I don't have to be best friends with, but they need something and I can serve them. And it's irrational. It doesn't make sense to the human mind. Why would you serve someone that you don't even like? Why would you serve someone that you struggle to even love? Because God set forth this example. And I have to ask myself a question. Do I really want to be a follower of Christ or do I want to be a respecter of Christ? And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we read things that Jesus did and we go, man, I really, I really revere the Lord for doing that. I respect him. I honor him for doing that. I respect that he served in that way. And that's awesome to revere him and to honor him in that way. But we're not called to be respecters of Christ. Primarily, we're called to be followers of Christ. So we can't read this and go, man, I really respect him. That's, that's awesome that Jesus did that. And then sit on our hands and not serve someone else around us. If we're followers of Christ, then we follow Christ. We go, Lord, how have you gifted me and allowed me opportunity to serve, even if it's irrational, even if it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking? I think many of us would have a hard time if we knew who Judas was and we knew what he was going to do, we'd have a really hard time serving him. 
We'd have a hard time being nice to him, let alone washing his feet. Which, by the way, yuck. Like, that's just, I mean, I just, I, I have to acknowledge, and every time we talk about this passage, I know I have to say it, but it's just, I don't, I don't like my feet. Is, that, I'm just curious, is there anybody who likes their own feet? Like, you're cool with your feet, you're happy with your feet, you're content with your feet. One, okay, I love Diane's proud enough to be like, yeah, my feet are awesome. Anybody not like their own feet? You just look at your feet and you're like, what's going on down there, okay? I would describe my feet based on a movie, but I don't want to go into that because it's going to put word pictures in your head and you're going to be distracted the rest of the service. And it's irrational. Now, culturally, it was accepted. It was a cultural norm to do this, especially for Passover, right? I mean, if you think about they're walking around, not the best, you know, dirt roads, sandals, dirty feet, right? It was an act of cleansing yourself before the Passover. But again, Jesus, as he always did, took something that was a tradition and symbolic in nature and just kind of something they most likely were just doing, going through the motions. And he said, let me show you the heart of this. Let me show you the big picture of this. Let me show you what this can really mean for you as you follow me. So again, as a follower of Christ, we have to honestly evaluate and ask ourselves, do we really want to follow him? Meaning imitate his works. Now, I'm not saying we have to go around washing people's feet. Don't go to your neighbor's house and say, excuse me, can I wash your feet? They're probably going to call the police on you, okay? It's weird. Don't do that. But what we're saying is the humility, the humbling of oneself to say, I will serve no matter my position or my title, I will serve. You see, Jesus can cleanse our dirty feet and hearts. John 13, look at 7 through 10. Jesus can cleanse our dirty feet and hearts. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter, being the amazingly like extreme guy that he is, everything's an ultimatum, uh, says here, Simon Peter saith unto the Lord, Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I love that. Don't wash my feet. I have to wash your feet or you can't, can't be with me. Okay, wash all of me. Like, it's amazing how quickly he changes. In verse uh, 10, Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. That sounds like a confused, one of those kind of confusing verses, like what is he talking about here? The reality is Jesus tells Peter that if he does not let Jesus do this, he has no part with him. Notice Jesus says there are levels of cleansing. The one that is clean needs only to wash his feet. But there were those among them that were not clean, even though their feet were washed. It's kind of what Jesus is getting at. There are these in this group that have in their hearts and in their minds received Christ the Savior. They've confessed and believed. And so they're clean spiritually. And so now this external cleansing is symbolic or representative of that internal cleansing. But then he says, but there are some of you who are not clean at all. And we know he's referring to Judas, who is going through the acts, going through the motions. He's physically having his feet cleansed, but internally he's not cleansed. And it's important we understand this difference. Those that are in Christ do not need to be cleansed repeatedly unto salvation. Those who are in Christ do not need to be cleansed repeatedly unto salvation. We don't have to keep getting saved over and over again. But a daily cleansing is needed 
to remove any of the sin in the believer's life that hinders the relationship with Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a daily cleansing. That's, Lord, as I've walked through today, Lord, there's been something I maybe said or did or didn't do, or, or maybe there's something in my life that I didn't even realize was a sin, something that was hindering. I'm just asking you to take that and to cleanse me of that so that I will have the purest relationship with you I can have. It's not I'm getting saved again. It's not if I don't do this daily cleansing, I'm not saved. And I feel like we have to get this. When I receive Christ, I am saved unto the day of redemption. You cannot lose it. It cannot be taken away. Nothing you do will strip it away because you don't hold on to your salvation. Christ holds on to you in salvation. But as a follower of Christ, as I'm maturing in Christ, as I'm in his word and praying and seeking him, there will be times God will say, listen, this needs to go or this needs to be included or I'm going to move in you to do this or to do this or say that or serve here. And we either agree or we disagree with what God is doing. And then when we make those choices, we may need to be cleansed in some way. John expounds. Isn't it amazing that John, in his epistle in 1 John, expounds on the emphasis in the upper room that he recorded in his gospel? See, John is the one that's recording this in the gospel of John. And it's the same John that records the epistle of 1 John. And so I can only imagine as John is sitting there writing this epistle, this 1 John letter, He's reminded of what Jesus did. And he's thinking back to Jesus' words when he was washing his feet. And he proclaimed to the whole group, this is for you. And you'll understand hereafter. And he's writing these words just remembering to think, man, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us. I don't think it's a mistake that John uses the word cleanse here. And I believe it's in complete agreement with John 13. When we receive Christ, we are cleansed uh, internally and can be graciously cleansed externally as we walk with him. So we serve in love. Again, if you're taking notes, we serve in love. But I also want to remind you, it's not just serving in love. Serving isn't just actions, it's attitudes. Serving isn't just actions, it's attitudes. Jesus did this amazing the rational act of love by washing their feet. But it's not just the action of what we serve. It's our attitude in why we serve and how we serve. Go over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Another familiar passage for many of us, but I want to look here and talk about the idea of our attitude in serving, our mindset in serving as we understand what it means to love like Jesus. So Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. I love the word there, vainglory. It's when we do things for our own glory, but it's really empty. It's not, it's not true glory. And I love that, that Paul writes to the Philippian church, do nothing, don't do anything through strife and vainglory. Rather than that, do it in lowliness, lowliness of mind. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of others. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So I'm not just worried about me. I'm looking at you. Man, what, what do you need? How can I serve you? Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, equal with God, right? He, was, he is and was God, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, 
took upon him the form of a servant. Now we read that word so fast sometimes. You might be thinking, you read every word really fast. Because I do, okay, and I talk fast. I apologize for that. But, but you read through there and you just think, he took upon him the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he took on flesh. And that taking on of flesh was for one purpose, to serve. To serve. Like he, he didn't have to do this. When you read this, it's all worded in a way to make us understand Jesus willfully made these choices. He wasn't a robot that had to do these things. He, he chose to take on the form of a servant or a slave. Verse 8, or rest of verse 7, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I want to focus on a couple key things here. And the, the phrase there in verse 5 really jumps out to me. So serving isn't just actions, it's attitudes. We have a Christ-like attitude in serving. A Christ-like attitude in serving. The phrase in verse 5, let this mind be in you. The word mind actually translates to our understanding more of attitude or mindset. And the emphasis is on the humbleness of Christ and serving those in need. In the same way that Christ had a mindset and an attitude of humility, Paul saying, hey, believers, hey, church, have this mindset. Have the same attitude that Jesus had when he served and when he humbled himself. One commentary points this out. Paul exhorts the Philippians to have a spirit of unity and mutual concern by embracing the attitude of humility. The greatest example of which is the incarnation and crucifixion of Christ. Paul saying, church, you can think more of each other. You can humble yourself. You can think of others first. You can serve them with the same attitude that Christ had. And here's the thing. If you think you're sacrificing to serve someone, Jesus Christ, God himself, equal with God, took on flesh, was humbled by even taking on the form of flesh lived a sinless life, died on a sinner's cross that you might have a relationship with him. But complain a little more about having to serve your neighbors when they're in need. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. He's using a very extreme case of humility, which is Christ. And he's saying, this is the greatest example. And you say you're followers of Christ, so follow this example. Jesus said this, let's have the same mind as Christ. Let's have the same attitude as Christ. What's amazing is, we already have, spiritually speaking, the mind of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2.16. That through salvation, we already have been given the mind of Christ. To have the mind of Christ means sharing the plan, purpose, and perspective of Christ. We don't have to pray for it. We merely need to allow the Spirit to produce the fruit in our lives. See, through salvation, you already have the spiritually speaking, the mind of Christ, the ability to think of the things that would please God. He's given you that. And now we need to let that attitude just flow out of us, that, that Holy Spirit fruit produced in our lives by just humbling ourselves. And I love the phrase, thinking not of just yourselves, but thinking of, your, of others. Looking not on the things that you don't have or do have, but looking on the needs of others. Man, it's really hard to do that though, isn't it? I know this morning, again, I want to be as, as real as possible with us. It's so easy to say, just think of others and not yourself. But man, sometimes the stuff we got going on is pretty big. 
It's all around. It's everywhere. It's overwhelming. I mean, it's just like you seem, it seems like one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. You just can't seem to stop thinking about what do I got to do? What do I got to take care of and my responsibilities and all that? And then you realize there's people around you in the church and out of the church that are dealing with things so much greater than what you can imagine. And so what do we do? Do we forget all our responsibilities and our needs? No, we merely acknowledge, okay, God, these things are real. I need to do my best with these, but I need to be thinking of other people before I worry about myself. So that's Christ-like serving. Jesus thought of us on the cross. He thought of you when he was being beaten. He thought of you when he was being tortured. He didn't think of himself. He thought this, would glor- this is going to glorify the Father and this will see people saved. He endured all of that. See, he had Christ-like attitude in serving, which we can have as well. But secondly, this idea of serving isn't just actions, it's attitudes. We need a Christ-like attitude in serving and a Christ-like appetite in serving. A Christ-like appetite in serving. Toddlers can be very egocentric. Is that a true statement to anyone's raised kids? Can toddlers be very egocentric? Everything is theirs. I want what I want. Toddlers can be very much this way. They have a I see it, I want it type approach. They will drop what's in their hand if you have, or if what you have seems more pleasurable in that moment. Have you ever done this with your kids or grandkids? Like give them a toy if they're like around, I don't know, maybe like, you know, one and a half, two, somewhere in there, three. Give them a toy and wait a few minutes, like maybe like three minutes and grab another toy and just hold it there in front of them. What do they do? Almost instinctively, they'll go, I want that one. Give them that one. Pick up the same toy that they just threw away and hold it and offer it to them. They'll go, oh yeah. And they'll throw that one away and take that one. It's a very egocentric, I want what I want and I want it now. And if there isn't a better illustration for our world today, I don't know what is. A bunch of toddlers running around. But anyway, and in the government. But that's beside the point. A bunch of adult toddlers. Someone needs to get in there and give them some discipline. But anyway, this idea of these, this toddler mentality, I, I want to encourage us to mirror that to some degree. Not in every way, but this I want mentality. And here's what I mean by that. If I can use that as an example, not that we should mirror toddlers in every example or in every way, I want us to have a toddler approach to serving. I want us to have a toddler approach to serving, always wanting to say, that's mine when it comes to opportunities to serve. So let's be looking for these opportunities to serve, not just waiting for them to find us. Give you an example. Someone needs help moving. That's mine. Someone needs help moving. That's mine. I got that one. I'm going to take that one. Someone needs groceries picked up. That's mine. I want to do that. That's mine. I'm going to have that approach to that serving. Someone needs encouragement. That's mine. A class needs a volunteer. That's mine. Nursery needs help. That's mine. Someone's going without for some, some period of time. That's mine. What can I do, Lord? I want to serve that person. And just this, instead of sitting back and go, yeah, if they ask me to serve, I'll serve. But I mean, it's got to be pretty direct. (laughs) No, no, no. In this Christian life, in church, out of church, it should be, man, Lord, help me to see the opportunities that are already all around me. And then have a toddler approach to go, nope, nope, that's mine. That one's mine. You can get the next one. That one's mine. 
This very excited, joyful. We need joy when we serve. Man, I, I, serving the Lord has been one of the most, at times, frustrating thing in my life, if I'm being real. But it's usually because I don't have my eyes on the Lord. But when I have my eyes on the Lord, I have to tell you that serving the Lord is one of the most joyful things I can do in my life. I'll be honest. I, last night, sitting in my little recliner, not watching any sports teams because they're all horrible anyway. No, not really. I'm just kidding. There was, there was nothing to watch. I was just like, I flipped on the Wings game, and I was like, oh, okay, turn that off. Um, but we were just sitting in the living room, and the, you know, I was kind of stretched out, and I was like, man, my back is killing me. And people are like thinking already, you're too young to say that. I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm only 26. I don't know what's going on. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not really. I'm 28. Okay, you got me. Um, But I remember thinking, I was like, man, I haven't really. And someone this morning said, you know, something about being sore, joking around. And they're older than I am. And I said, are you really sore? And they went, no. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I'm kind of sore, but that's cool. Like, whatever. And you know what? You could easily go like, why did I spend that time this morning doing that at that park? You know, man, is anyone going to really ever notice? I mean, other than our church and a few handful of people, no one really knows that we did it. I mean, kids, we were leaving and there was a a mom and a dad and a real little one coming up and he was just running around on the the mulch and it hit me and I was like, they have no idea. Because a couple of us were just sitting around. I was with the boys for a little bit. And I was like, they have no idea that we just did that. They're enjoying it. They're involved in it. They get to benefit from it, but they have no idea. And last night I was sitting there. It was like the flesh was like, was it worth it? You feel good? I was like, no, I don't feel that great physically. Okay. But that probably has more to be with my, the rest of how I spend my days than it is about one morning of shoveling mulch for a couple or an hour. But it was like, the Lord was just like, who cares if they know? Like, do they have to know you did that? Do you have to put a sign out and a t-shirt and all that? It's great to encourage each other and to share that we did it and we got to be a part of it. Because I want to I want to encourage the church. The pictures we posted on Facebook to show people serving was to encourage you, you can do this. But it's not to get glory for us. It's not to get praise for us. It's to say, God, we did this for you. And so you be glorified in this. You be praised in this. So when we approach serving, we need to have that attitude. It's mine and I'm doing it for the Lord. And when the flesh comes calling and say, you know, you gave up a morning to do that. You gave up some time. You sacrificed here. You sacrificed there. Was it really worth it? The answer is a resounding and always yes. It's always worth it to please him. It's always worth it to serve him. So I want to encourage you. What opportunities are around you right now? What ways has God gifted you and given you talents and abilities and opportunity to serve? Whether it's a little thing or a big thing, what is it that God is calling you to realize in the area of service. The reality is we can't do everything on our own. We all can't individually say that's mine to everything because we'll never get anything done. But when we as a church, as a body of Christ say, okay, we're going to individually realize what has God gifted me with and go do that. And we're all doing that together. Man, we'll see the needs of this community and this church be met for the glory of God. I want to close with a definition of ministry from Warren Worsby. And I believe it summarizes so well the love that we can display through serving as Christ served. Warren Worsby says this as he defines ministry. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. 
Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. The reality is you and I are those loving channels that God desires to work through. That take his divine resources and meet human needs. And he uses the church. He uses you and I as followers of Christ to meet those needs. We get to be a part of that. Little things or big things, God knows. Isn't it amazing that only God... So this series was planned, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago to be around this time. And isn't it amazing when I was planning that sermon series, I kept kind of wrestling back and forth with a couple of weeks. Do we do it a week earlier or a week later? A week earlier or a week later? And I went with a week later. We got a call from North Branch a week and a half ago to serve yesterday. Isn't it like God to give a practical opportunity for us to serve as a church and then the very next day remind us that we can do it for Christ? In the same weekend, not planned, not prepared, we had an opportunity to serve. And then the very next day, God laid it on the hearts, uh, my heart rather, to share with you and your hearts that serving isn't about just us getting glory. It's about glorifying him. That we need to be people of service. We need to be loving our community and others in a way of serving them. That is how God works. That's, you know, oh, that's a great coincidence. Nope. Nope, it's not a coincidence. It's not chance. It's not fate. It's sovereignty. <laughs> it's God orchestrating things for his glory. And I'm, I was blown away. Actually, this morning that hit me as I was coming into church. I was thinking, God, how awesome are you? That you designed everything in the last two months to now to fit to this exact weekend where you would do this. And here's why, you're like, what's the big deal, preacher? We know he does those kind of things. Awesome. He wants to do those things in your life. And if you're sitting there going, man, God, I know you're impressing on my heart to serve in this ministry, to serve this way. That's not by chance. That's not by coincidence. He has a plan for you. And he wants you to step up by faith and say, I'll step through that plan. I'll do what you're calling me to do. Let's have a toddler mentality in serving. Let's have a Christ-like appetite in serving. We just want to serve where it's needed. I always love the story where Jesus is walking through the crowd and the woman touched the hem of his garment and she was healed instantly. And I love that he stopped and he turned, he acknowledged the whole, the whole situation. What's amazing is he was going somewhere. He was busy. He was on his way to perform a miracle that God would be glorified. And he stopped to spend time with this woman who didn't even think she was worthy enough to have a face-to-face conversation. And she just thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, that would be enough. And Jesus stopped and served her, even when he was busy. And so my encouragement to all of us is, listen, it's going to take work to see the opportunities and then sacrifice to step up and say, I'll sacrifice this to serve in this way. But I pray, I promise you that if you'll begin praying for God's wisdom in that, he will open doors of opportunity that you can't even imagine. And then he'll be glorified. We'll be blessed because we get to be a part of what he's doing and the church will grow, not just numerically, but the body of Christ will begin to grow and continue to grow as people see the love of Christ for themselves. Father, we praise you and we honor you for all that you're doing. Lord, we pray that as we gather this morning, that you have been glorified in all that has been said and done. And Father, I know that when we talk about serving one another and getting involved where we can get involved and and doing what you've gifted us to do, Lord, it takes work, it takes effort, it takes 
us making a choice to say, I'm willing to give up this to, to serve and do that. I'm willing to help here to minister in that way, even if it's inconvenient at times. Lord, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member or a friend. Maybe it's something little, maybe it's something big. Lord, it might be such a simple thing too. And so, Lord, in all these things, we pray for your wisdom that we would love as you loved, that we would serve those that you've placed in our lives, that we would have a a Christ-like attitude in our serving, humbling ourselves and thinking of others first. Father, that we would have a Christ-like appetite as we serve others. Just a desire to to not wait and not have to be um, even asked but just so aware of what's going on, Lord, that when we see it, we can respond and and see you glorified. Father, again, I pray in all of this that you have been and will continue to be glorified. Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you as their Savior. Father, I pray that if there's someone here that has not received Christ, that you would prick their heart, convict them of sin and righteousness, that they would know, that they would know that their sin is real, and carries a weight and a consequence in eternity that if we die in our sins, we'll be separated from you in a place called hell. But Father, I pray that they would equally know that there is grace for forgiveness of sins, that they would know that they can call out to you right now, right where they are in their hearts, confess their sins, believe that you died on the cross and was buried and rose again for them. Ask you to save them. Just just commit their lives to you, Lord, and just give themselves to you as an act of worship. Father, we know that if we would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And so I pray if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that has not done that, anyone watching online that has not done that, I pray that they would make that decision as you give them that ability to be aware of their sin and of grace. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our hearts this morning. I pray again that you would just lead God and direct in all these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As we're led in a song of invitation, would you come and pray? Maybe you know an area that you need to serve a neighbor, a family member, a friend, and God wants you to just commit that to him. Maybe you need to be saved this morning. Come and pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins. Whether they're in your seats or here at the altar, whatever God is doing, would you respond this morning to his initiative?